0: Welcome to episode 75 of the AEM RSA Resident and Student podcast series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. This episode is a recording of a live webinar that took place on September 9th, 2020. In this episode, Leah Colucci, AEM RSA Medical Student Council Vice President, and Brian Redmond, AEM RSA Medical Student Council Northeast Regional Representative, interview East Coast Program Directors from Jackson Health Emergency Medicine, the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center, and North Florida Regional Medical Center.
1: Uh, my name is Brian Redmond. I'm a second-year medical, first-year graduate, MD-PhD student at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. I am the Northeastern representative on the AAEM RSA Medical Student Council. This panel will be facilitated by myself uh, and Leah uh, Colucci, a fourth-year medical student at the Miller School of Medicine at the University of Miami, who also serves as the vice president of the AAEM RSA Medical Student Council. This panel is one of many that the AAM RSA Medical Student Council has organized to give medical students the opportunity to explore uh, emergency medicine residency programs across the US, develop relationships with their affiliated program directors, uh, and just in a safe space, relax and talk about emergency medicine. The current pandemic has brought new challenges to the application cycle. And the process that getting to know part about a program is an initial and very critical step in the application process. Although virtual, we hope these panels will alleviate some of the application stress.
2: So just to introduce you to our amazing panelists, we have Dr. Freeman and Dr. Sapino from UM Jackson Memorial Health. We have Dr. Holly and Dr. Vega from North Florida Regional. We have Dr. Bodkin, from University of Rochester. And then we have Dr. Garg from New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell, Cornell Medical Center. So without further ado, can each program start by telling us one thing that makes your program special that you would like applicants to know?
3: I'm Chris Freeman, again, I'm the program director at University of Miami and Jackson. I think what really makes our program special is the experience the residents get. After they come here, they really are well prepared to go practice anywhere. We are a big academic county hospital system, and that's combined with our community partner, Holy Cross Hospital. So residents get a real meaningful experience in both a busy county ED and a busy academic, our busy uh, community center. And that combination really gets our residents prepared to hit the floor running wherever their careers may take them.
4: Dr. Vega and I are from North Florida, and I think what makes our program or the characteristic of our program that would be something you would be interested in is that we're, we're a really small, intimate program. We have eight residents a year. All of our attendings know all of our residents, all of our residents know all of our residents. We are community hospitals. So we have zero competing um, services. We do all of our own ortho reductions. Nobody does our chest tubes, et cetera. So it's just a completely different environment. And I think that that is one of the challenges this year that we were talking about that students who are not rotating in multiple environments, educational environments um, really need to talk to residents who are currently residents in county hospitals, in community hospitals, in academic, more academic settings, Um, because right now there's great hybrids of all of those, um, and it's kind of figuring out what speaks to your learning, like how you learn the best. And so I think for us, we're very community hospital, and um, I am happy to talk about that more to help you realize which type of um, program you would really gel with.
5: Thank you. Uh, I'm Ryan Bodkin. I'm the program director at the University of Rochester Medical Center in uh, Rochester, New York. I think the thing that makes our program most unique, I would say, is the dynamic nature of our program. The motto of the University of Rochester is is miliora, which uh, in Latin means ever better. It's something that we strive for, something that we are, you know, a well-established, long-standing program since 1994, big academic program, lots of affiliations with community-based programs where our residents rotate, but we're somewhere where we are always trying to improve. Um, we really take resident feedback and resident content uh, very specific and try to adjust our, our what we're offering, our rotations we're offering, and the didactics that we're offering really to try to fit the current needs of the resident because so those are changing so quickly. Um, sometimes it's hard to keep up, but it's something that we really pride ourselves on trying to do the best we can with that. So I would kind of name that as one thing I think that's uh, you know unique or special about uh, what we do here.
6: Yeah. I'll, I'll, thank you, everyone, for... Uh... This opportunity to share time with you today. My name is Minish Gard. I'm the program director for the New York Presbyterian Cornell and Columbia combined program. Uh, I think what really helps to set us apart from a lot of other programs in the, at least New York City area, is we um, have about a 240,000 patient volume, 200 faculty member uh, program that that serves at both uh, Cornell and Columbia. We have some pretty interesting relationships. We work with the hospital for special surgery, which is a premier orthopedic center. We work with Memorial Sloan Kettering. So the residents get really exposed to a ton of different experiences with um, specialty care. They have opportunities to do a lot of their own procedures. Um, We have really great faculty mentorship. There's, I mean, it's pretty amazing some of the things that the residents have access to and are able to do. Um, We've had residents work with uh, narrative medicine specialists so that they can learn medical journalism and publish really incredible things. We've had residents work with our aerospace uh, emergency medicine folks, our global medicine programs in Tanzania or in England, um, you know, ton of sports medicine folks with our wrestling um, uh, person. I mean, it's, there's a lot of opportunities. And what we like to think is if you come to us, um, there's likely to be a mentor for you at our particular shop that shares your passion and, um, and, and, and I think like all of us probably on the, on the group, we really, really celebrate family and really want you to feel the love from, from us as we root you on in the program.
2: Wonderful, thank you all so much. Um, so we had another question that came in. With the changing of all residency programs to ACGME and the recognition of COMLEX as a USMLE equivalent, Will programs begin accepting COMLEX for placement or will DO students still be required to have a step one from USMLE to be competitive?
7: For probably the majority of MD or DO prior programs. I I think even in past years, we were always accepting DO only students or students who only had COMLEX scores. Um, If you had, if you had, If you were an MD student and also, and you had step scores as well, we accepted those. But if you had complex only, I mean, even going back three or four years ago in our program, we absolutely looked at those and we were not excluding those three years ago, two years ago, or last year. Um, And I think that's, I, I would think that was probably true in a lot of programs. And I'm and I can definitely speak that is true in our program. Um, so I think we're definitely willing to look at students that have COMLEX only. Um, and we're happy to look up the score conversions and what that means and compared to a step score to a complex score. Um, and we don't have necessarily a preference or a um, preference from MD versus DO or one student, one type of student being better than the other. It's just about evaluating the whole student and
5: what they bring to the table. I, I would agree with uh, Dr. Vega. I think that's a, a very um, accurate answer. I think most programs across the country will view both the same. I would say not all though. Um, and if you're looking to be the most competitive applicant in, a, in applying to programs, look at the dynamics of their program, look at the, the, the people that they've matched, look at they've matched DOs, um, and reach out to the program directors and ask them. We're, we're all, we all understand that this is a very um, different year than other years and we all want to attract residents that want to fit in our program and are going to do well in our program so there's no reason for them to, to tell you false truths so you know if you're unsure if you see a program that has no do's in it reach out and ask maybe they just didn't match really in the last three years and they ranked them all in the top 10 percent they're really excited to have a do um and they don't care about uh u.s versus complex so i would take a look at the dynamics of their program and look at the people that are in it um and reach out if you have any questions or concerns but i, I agree with uh, dr big i think um we're the same. We we look at all the scores, we have conversion charts for our ranking program, as well as our, you know, offers for, um, you know, interview spots. And um, we try to try to compare things pretty equally across the board. So um, do the best you can on your tests and uh, reach out if you have any questions for the specific programs. If you see somewhere that might not have a lot of DOs in their program and just ask them.
3: Yeah. And I think especially this year, you know, uh, you sort of mentioned it already, but this year, I think all bets are off the table. So even programs that maybe traditionally wanted both tests um, are probably not particularly concerned this year.
6: Yeah, I'm I'm going to echo what everybody just said. I mean, look, I think one thing that you don't, as applicants to medical school, you were like willing to donate a bodily organ to get in, right? I think you don't realize that now, you know, we really want to find, you know, the right matches for us as well as kind of show off our programs. So you know, reaching out to all of us and letting us know that you're interested, and I think I think that's you'll, you'll find a lot of programs will, will communicate back with you.
1: Just um, tackling uh, something that came up in the chat. Um, Dr. Garge answered a question that um, was sent to all panelists um, exclusively, and the question was: Are programs more understanding of SLOEs coming in slightly later than October 21st, as finding an early rotation was difficult? Being from a medical school without an EM residency uh, and Dr. Uh, Garge's reply was uh, of course this is a completely different year. Um, he would say try your best to get your letters in as soon as possible since the timeline on the back end is shortened for us. Um, continue, um, I would say we would continue to look at SLOEs and reach out to your favorite programs to let them know about the changes in your application.
4: Can I just add to that? Because I think it's important to say that, again, this year is different. All bets are off the table. But I would advise you, and this is um, advice coming from several different professional organizations, that if you are planning on applying to a program, it is important to have your application in by October 21st. And the other panelists can speak to that because maybe they have different opinions. Even if your slow is coming in late. Make sure you've identified those programs and applied to them because October 21st is when we get to see all of the applicants who's applied to us. And my advice was to maybe mention it and indicate it somehow, reach out to the programs individually saying you are going to have a slow or an e slow an o slow um, by, you know, October 28th or November 1st, whatever it is. But you are interested in the program and you have submitted your application by October 21st.
5: One more general question uh, or comment about uh, slowies. Get a commitment from your letter writers about when they're going to have them complete so that you have the opportunity to reach back out to them and bug them for it. You know what I mean? So just say, you know, when, when are you going to be able to get this complete? Okay, October 20th, great. Do you mind if I shoot you an email October 20th if I don't see it in my heiress? So that gives you permission. You won't feel like you're bothering them. Uh, you won't feel like they're nagging them. This is really important for your career. Um, so, so just get uh, identify a date from them so that you don't feel awkward about emailing your mentor or someone who's offered to do you a favor to write you a letter, which is a lot of work to write a good letter, um, that allows you to basically reach out to them and, and ask them about it. So I really try to tell my mentees to be able to do that. So just ask them when their stories will be ready. And just say, do you mind if I email you on that date if I don't see it in there? And most of them do want reminders because if they forget, it's a legitimate I forgot. Oh my gosh, I got to get it done. So, um, you know, get a commitment from them and, and reach back out and make sure it gets done as soon as possible because it's important for you and we all know that. So we want to make sure you have the best shot at getting in as well.
6: I love that. I I, I actually one one strategy I tell uh, applicants is to send a thank you letter if you know that the letter isn't quite there yet. And if you, send, if you send your letter writer a thank you letter, they'll be like, oh my God, I didn't write that letter. And then they'll, they'll write a letter.
2: So on the topic of slows, we had another uh, question come up that said, if, do programs have a preference of what types of slows do they have? Do they just want a normal slow? Would they have a preference of a normal slow, a subspecialty and an O slow? Or is it okay to just have an O slow and a subspecialty slow, or what's this combination that's the ideal one that you'll be looking for this year?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we all recognize that it's gonna be challenging for people to get letters this year. Um, So I think people are gonna have a lot of flexibility in that. I think, you know, for us, we still wanna see a rotation in emergency medicine rotation. So that slow from emergency medicine is probably the most meaningful assessment of clinical performance in the emergency department, really what we're looking for.
4: Um, That's a great question, but because of the limitations of rotations, um, there are some really good resources online to explain to you the difference between all four of those. One put out by the cord slow committee um, and it's like a five or seven minute, um, I don't know what it's called, little video for you. Um, And I would suggest watching that, but at this point it does seem late in the game and you probably know what your rotations are and what slows you're getting and you kind of are in a um, position where you have to know what you can change and commit to that. And know what you can't change and commit to making it the best possible situation. So if you're sitting somewhere and all you have is an O slow or all you have is a subspecialty, meaning you don't have an EM residency slow, you're in the same boat as other people. So you still can commit to performing the best you can on that rotation and making the rest of your application, you know, bolster your position and make sure that the residency people reading your application know that you're committed to being an excellent resident and maybe only had one clinical rotation but this is a pandemic and you are committed and you're going to be an awesome resident and this is why. So I think that um, there's a lot of anxiety out there and I can completely understand that. I have a little bit of my own going on this interview season. I don't know if any of the other program directors are getting any sleep But um, we really know that, and you really have to let some of that go and um, educate yourself, understand there's lots of people in the same boat and um, work on it. I will tell you that I totally echo Dr. Freeman, I think everyone will, we're used to the slows, the people who are EM, residency, shops, um, know how to write them, we know each other, they have the same language. The new slows out there, which they're not new to you guys because this is your first cycle, but the new slows out there for non-residency trained EM people are really well written and we're going to be really reading all of that. So try not to worry about what you can't change right now. That's going to be my, maybe that's advice to me and I just said it to you, but I'm going to try to take it.
7: Also, Along those same threads like I think a lot of students stress that they've only got one true EM rotation and they can't possibly be truly competitive in that one month. And that letter can't possibly be good. And how can they make that month the best possible. Well, guess what every student in the country is in the exact same position as you and guess what all the program directors in the country all know that and, and every student that rotates with us, we recognize that in all the students that are there. And we know that you haven't seen a patient in person since February. And we're, we're happy that you're back in the hospital. We're happy that you have an ER rotation with us. And um, I don't think anyone's holding that against you. And we're, we're happy to, to help you make that transition back and to allow you that opportunity to transition back into clinical emergency medicine. And so no one's trying to hold that against you that you tried to match into emergency medicine during a pandemic. Because guess what? We still need residents next year. We still want great emergency medicine residents next year. And yes, we understand there are limitations to this year's class, but you know, we have limitations to this year's faculty, you know, this year's program directors. So we're we're happy to to, to meet you in the middle. And we know that you have your issues and limitations but so do we and we want to help you work and meet in the middle of those two things and we want to you know help you bridge that gap so we're not we're not trying to hold that against you one of the questions specifically was during the time during this time of emergency medicine clerkships and only having um, one slow how how are we going to evaluate the applications differently you know, in the past two to three slows was standard commonplace. So yeah, we looked at all of them and we valued all of them. Eh, I mean, equally might be a stretch, you know, we might have given more value to the ones that more reputable programs or more um, programs that we knew better or had more of a relationship with personally, Um, you know, but this year we truly might only get one per resident. So how are we going to, deal with that and i think that varies from program to program but of course that's going to get significant weight from all of us because there's only going to be one but does that mean it's to the exclusion of everything else in your application of course not of course not because we know that this is not your fault that you were in your fourth year of you know medical school during a pandemic and you only had one shot you know no one's perfect you only had one chance. You can't be perfect when you only get one shot at emergency medicine, you know. So, yes, we're going to look at it, and yes, it has significant weight, but it's not going. To, it's not to the exclusion of everything else in your medical education history.
5: Yeah, I think Dr. Holly and Dr. Vega are right on. I think we are all as anxious, maybe not as anxious, but probably equally as anxious as as you all are about this season. And I agree with Dr. Vega, you know, if an EM physician or a group of EM physicians works with you and says, this person's outstanding, there are no risk resident and they're gonna kick butt, I believe that. And so those slowies are important, um, period, because it's EM physicians telling other EM physicians that you're good at this job or you will be good at this job. And so it is is important. Um, Having two, three, four at this point is not, but if you have one group letter, um, that's what, you know, I'll tell you flat out, that's what we rank highest. And that's what we consider highest is the group slowie from your home or away institution, wherever you got it from, because it's a group of EM doctors looking at you saying that this person can do the job. And I trust my colleagues and, and understand that they see a lot of people come through this process and, and know who's going to make a good EM position and who might struggle a little bit. So um, that is important to so do the best you can on that EM rotation um, and trying to shine is, is important. Um, there's no doubt about that. And that's going to make you uh, stand out. You don't need four solid slowies. You need one good one. And that's all.
1: There are lots of questions um, in the chat about slows and about CKs and about step one scores. Uh, And one very, very common question um, that's showing up in the chat is about step one becoming pass fail uh, and and how program directors, um, you know, how applicants will be ranked in lieu of those scores. Uh, Could some of the program directors speak to this shift in, in standardized testing and how that would change the review of applications? Yeah, I
3: think, you know, speaking for our program, USMLEs are a very good predictor of how people may do on their boards. Beyond that, it doesn't speak much about how people are as EM physicians, how they are as doctors, how they are as residents or anything else we're looking for. So we want people to have, you know, historically we wanted people to have, you know, do well enough that we don't have to worry about them on their boards. But beyond that, it's not what we're looking for in a resident. You know, it's everything else. And that's still how we're going to look at applications. So we're going to look at their letters, certainly. We're going to look at med school performance. We're going to look at outside activities. We're going to look at research. All the other things that we still looked at, we're still going to look at when CK, you know, step one is pass fail. So I don't think it, you know, for us, it doesn't really have a tremendous effect.
6: Yeah, I would, I would echo what Dr. Freeman just said. I think it's another, it was another data point. And I think that there were certain aspects about that data point that, um, that I, I, you know, I, there could be like an argument, but I think that are, there were some structural problems with that data point. And again, it's not gonna reveal who's the best doctor. So, you know, just, just like uh, Dr. Freeman mentioned, I would say for us, yeah, we wanna know how you, you did on your grades. We wanna know what, what the actual letter writers wrote in your MSPE, because that means a lot. We want to know what your EM letters spoke to. There's a number of different attributes that um, our, our colleagues around the country write about you with regards to your work ethic, commitment to the field, all of these different things really are important. Um, you know, and for some of us, uh, there was a question on the chat about geography that might matter for us. You know, we we have a social justice mission, and we're very like that to us speaks volumes, and so that this is something we want. We want to see that you're a leader because we're trying to not just develop great doctors, but we're trying to develop great leaders. So that's something that we want to see that you have in your application. So, you know, it's a holistic review, including your personal statement. Um, I actually enjoy going through the personal statement with uh, the applicants on interview day because it's what you're writing and what you've put so much time into. So, you know, I, I, I hope you can rest assured that even though they might be taking away some of your extra letters or maybe even this you know step one that that we're still going to try to get to know the whole of you because at the end of the day we want you to do really right by our patients you know we're, we're bringing you into our program so that you can take care of our great communities and that you can really love this field and so you know we want to find the people that are really going to do that
2: thank you so another question that we had was do any programs have advice for residents that are switching from other specialties so the current residents um, that are now deciding to apply into emergency medicine.
6: So we, we've had a number of, uh, did somebody else want to go and speak?
2: Oh, go ahead, Mish, I'll go after, no worries. Yeah,
6: we've had a, we've had a number of folks uh, switch specialties. Um, we'd like to think that they saw the light <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and love this field of emergency medicine like we do. And some of them, it was, you know, hey, God, I took my EM, you know, right at the end of my fourth year, because I didn't have a, required clerkship, and I love this thing, and I loved it when I was in my specialty field. What I would advise you to do is try to meet with the program director or somebody on the program leadership to get, like, an honest assessment of your ability to come over. If you look at the NRMP um, data that's out there historically, EM tends to have a pretty uh, close fit in terms of the amount of people that apply to the amount of people that have homes. Um, But um, I think this year is very different. And because there aren't going to be as many folks that have rotations, um, there might be more opportunity for people that are considering uh, from a different specialty coming in. Um, I've already counseled a couple people on that and tried to give them an honest assessment of where they are. They'll have a letter. You want to make sure you get a really, really good letter from your program director in your field. You really need that. And you also, it would be good to get some type of letter from somebody in the program leadership who hopefully you've had some sort of a longitudinal relationship with. So those would be your, your best strategies for doing it. But often I find that people are very, very qualified to come from other specialties.
5: Yeah, Dr. Gregg's right on. Use your personal statement as well to tell us why. Um, why are you switching? You saw the light it 's great. we all know EM's the best ever, so we, we understand why people want to switch into it um, but Dr. Grave's right, if there is not a letter from your current program director, that is a red flag for me of like why didn 't you ask the person who 's been your boss for the last year, two years, three years to write you a letter that 's concerning and if you don 't explain it at all in your in your in your um, personal statement um, you know i 'm not sure why you want to switch over, so use that as a opportunity to tell us why you want to come into em. What changed in your mind? What changed in your opinion, and why you're switching over?
3: Yeah, and I would sell your experience. You know, we love having you know residents that have done some other training and come to emergency medicine. They bring a unique skill set. They bring a unique background. They add to the residency, uh, and we've been you know very happy with all the people that we've taken that had prior training. So make sure you sell what you bring. You know, you bring different skills as a surgeon or if you've done internal medicine or whatever it may be um, and make sure you highlight that during, you know, in your personal statement, during your interview day, however that may look um, and your interactions with programs.
6: I don't know if you can hear that, but it's 7 p.m. in New York City and they're still ringing the bell for people and for the pandemic. So um, our thoughts are with you all out there. I
4: think there's been some question on um, progression of resident responsibility. Is that something that we should answer, Leah? That
1: was actually the question we're going to ask. One on um, Could you all speak on the progression of autonomy and responsibility for residents as they progress through their training? Um, What does their independence look like as they progress from intern year to, to graduate to chief?
4: So sometimes, just briefly, sometimes I feel like what students, um, when they talk about autonomy, um, may be something different than what the educators are speaking about, progressive responsibility, and and, um, what, for example, the ACGME, who regulates the quality of your education and residencies, they have a very clear requirement that there is progressive responsibility, which makes sense because you don't want to be kicked out in the real world if you've been helicopter parented by your attending all three years or all four, depending where you you go. Um, so that is definitely market. I think that what you guys might want to really know because it speaks to your learning style and it helps you differentiate which programs you would thrive in is what, kind, what does the autonomy of the intern versus the third year, what does their shift responsibilities look like and how are they trained, especially in that last year, last six months how do they feel when they get out as well? And so, for example, I'm just very familiar with JAX as a county program, you know, Dr. Freeman is as well, because Florida, it's a small community. Well, actually it's larger than some states, but we all know each other. Um, And in that scenario, you really are very- And I trained there, so I'm quite familiar with JAX. Absolutely. You're really kind of thrown out in your senior residents are there to back you up. Your attending is ultimately there to back you up, but you um, like, what's the term? You have to fly. You have to fly. And for some people that initial, is stressful. And then for some people that's invigorating and that's accountability, responsibility, and it's amazing. Um, So I would say that in our program, we have attendings in the department all the time and we're there to back you up, but as you progress in the years, like for example, our senior residents run our critical side, for example, they run all the sides, but our critical side, they are the person who has direct line with the charge nurse. They watch every single EMS come in the door and they delegate um, when they need to, they work all, you know, they delegate alerts. So they really are starting to not only take care of patients knowing the science, but knowing the progress and how to run the department. So I'm not sure if that's what the question was answering, but I think it's a great question to ask the residents as you are meeting them and to think about what has really invigorated you um, when you're in the ER working. Like, do you like to have explanation, back see one, teach one? Do you like to be like hanging from a thread and that gets you going and inspired?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so the, transition is an interesting question too. So I think the big transition is obviously from medical student to resident. then you have transition throughout the years and different responsibilities. and it's going to look different at each program a little bit. Um, but like Robin was saying, all residencies have some progression of responsibilities. So for us, you know our third years are you know upper levels were through your program they are responsible for the ED area, the pod that they're in. And they make sure all the patients get seen. They supervise some of the patients. They are responsible for making sure the ambulances get seen when they come in. And they're really running the show, you know, in preparation for their independent practice, you know, at the end of their third year. Um, and there's progressive responsibilities leading up to that point, so it's going to look a little bit different uh, at each program. I think you know more important than you know specifically what it looks like for these four programs is what Robin was saying is that you know it's something you want to get a feel for and know yourself and know what you're looking for and how you best learn and what you like best about medical school. And then you can find the appropriate fit when you go and do your Zoom interviews and Zoom meetings with residents and all those fun social activities via Zoom this year and try to figure out what program works for you because it's not one right way of doing it, it's finding the fit for you. And I just want to add to what Dr. Freeman was saying, we have sort of this unwritten policy, it's your patient, your procedure, It doesn't matter sort of what year you're in. That being said, you will if you're uncomfortable with a procedure, there's always an attending Or a supervising resident who happens to be a senior. So that's another form of the graduated responsibility in the supervisory role. But if it's your patient, you own that procedure and you get to do it.
7: I think um, I'd like to speak up only because I think sometimes there is hesitation with newer programs only just to say that we modeled some of our strategies with, honestly, the way that we did things at Shands Jacksonville with the fact that the interns did all airways. And I think that was, that's important because I think sometimes that information isn't out there for medical students or, you know, newer people in the game don't have that information, don't know what happens. So if there's an airway that needs to be done, the, the intern that's on shift at that time will be pulled in to do that airway unless they're truly just unavailable. The other day, for example, our intern could not be found because he was in a triple COVID evaluation, You know, three layers of PPE deep, John Day, um, three layers of PPE deep. And we knew by the time we found him that patient was gonna code. Um, but, but truly the intern is the first level. Um, and they get the first attempt or two attempts or three attempts. And then if they're not able to, then it's the senior resident and then the attending, for example. And and that's how we did things at JAPS where I trained. Um, and the senior resident is the one running the code always, um, they're at the foot of the bed running the code or running the situation with the attending and that's uh that's just a standard thing in our er and i i I love that transition because the the interns just know that they're going to get to do the airway and the second years and up just know that they're going to be running it and the third years they're honestly happy when they get to be third years and and they really don't have a role and they're just like yay i get to do the airway today yay i get to run it today okay whatever um so i think Everyone having that dedicated transition along the way, and then that opportunity to do all of the roles as they reach sort of the end of their training, I think is a good opportunity for everyone.
2: So another question that came up and Dr. Garger's been very quick in the chat. So I appreciate that. But one of the questions that was asked is how is resident health and well-being addressed at your programs? And you can say something again if you wanted, Dr. Garger, and if not, if other programs wanted to comment on it as well.
6: I mean, I I think this is what it's really all about. I mean, we can't pre preaching family if you don't, you know, show the love for your residents. I mean, I think one of the things that many of us commit to is that, you know, there's been so many people who have poured in just, I mean, I'm a parent, who just poured in countless amount of love into um, you when you were younger to get you to this place. And I think a lot of us on the program leadership side think about taking that, that, that torture, that baton and trying to shepherd you through this. And if we don't protect your well-being, um, then I think we leave you very, very vulnerable in a very, very hard specialty. Um, and I, I think that it's really critical that we do everything we can. So, I mean, I try to reach out to residents. I try to reach out to their families. I try to get to know them. Cause I, I feel like if I, if I can know them more than just professionally and I know them personally, then I can just really mentor them to the best of my ability. So, you know, a lot of the things that I wrote in the chat, I think are really, really important when the pandemic hit um, over, I mean, over 50% of my residents in New York city were either um, contact isolated, quarantined or sick. And um, it got to the point where they told us, I mean, we had one day where um, we had 200 to 300 plus patients in a single ED coming in um, that were possible COVID. And, and, you know, it was, it was pretty crazy. And, you know, we didn't at that time know about PPE. And so we we got all of our folks together. We tried to use this, like, you know, hear me, prepare me, support me, um, you know celebrate me model. And I think that really, really helped us because we were able to listen to what the residents' concerns were, validate that we didn't have all the answers. We were learning from the residents just as much as they were learning from us because they were the frontest line doctors. And this they're the ones who were right up with the patients, making sure that 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 abdominal pain was really COVID and it wasn't appendicitis and, you know, credit to them for doing all those things. And after we kind of made it through and thankfully everybody was at least okay from the resident standpoint, um, you know, we, we tried to do our best to celebrate them and showcase them and, and, you know, put them on websites and, you know, have them speak to you know interviews and, and different things with media outlets because we just, we, we, we consider them our heroes. And I think it's really important that when you're going to a program that you really feel that you're gonna be, you know, taken care of and supported. And that's the reason why, like, when folks have diversity questions for me, I, I, I want them to ask those questions because I want them to feel as part of our family because we celebrate everybody. And I think that's really important when you're trying to find a place that you're gonna call home for the next three or four years, that, um, that you know, that, that they've got your back.
5: Oh, so yeah, I was to say, I, I think Dr. Greg's right on. I think that one of the things that we need to focus on and that um, you know, emergency medicine is incredibly challenging and there's a significant amount of burnout. And if we're not doing our job early in your career to create patterns of wellness and create patterns of resilience and success, uh, we're failing you. So you know, we've really taken an approach at the University of Rochester of uh, you know, less kind of systemic and, and corporatized wellness and more individualistic approach, like Dr. Greg says, getting to know you, getting to know what makes you well. What's important to you what's uh you know going to give you a positive attitude and, and a resilience towards what we're facing and without that individualistic approach um it's just not successful telling everybody to go do yoga for 45 minutes isn't going to fix everybody it might fix a few people uh, i like yoga so it might fix me but it's not going to fix everybody so we really try to have a individualized approach to this and we have a great mentorship program we have individually mentors that are chosen by our residents we have faculty mentors that do that we have big little sibs we really try to create connectivity within our residency, create that family feel and and allow for individualization of the wellness-based activities that we do um, to to create sustainability with this. It's something that you need to sustain for 30 years of your career, not just through three years of residency. And that's what's really important.
4: Um, I think that what we're hearing a very common theme, which I think that the the students, um, almost residents, um, would appreciate its connection. And I think that probably each of our residencies are doing similar Um we I really enjoy the connection. I came, I was leadership at a program that had a ton of like there's 14 residents a year, and I came from a residency that had 17 residents a year, um, which was cool because I could just fly under the radar and I never got in trouble. However, as a program director, I really enjoy having eight residents a year. And my faculty, um, we were a private group prior to starting a residency. So they have a lot of buy-in. And we are all planning on working in our shop a long time. And because of that, they invest, we invest a lot in making it a place we want to work. And so I, I think that's similar to what um, the other um, program directors, Dr. Bogan, Dr. Garge was saying. I really think that the connection is the deal. So maybe asking how programs um, really uh, push, not push, um, encourage connection we have very specific mentor families it sounds similar to rochester and in fact um i'm in trouble tomorrow because i'm putting on a chief's retreat because they got cheated out of their chiefs retreat so we're having like a pool day chiefs retreat tomorrow that's why i was late i was shopping for pool towels for them and got caught in a construction site but anywho um and i'm in trouble because one of the mentor families is having their mentor family social distancing barbecue tomorrow, which it's just an attending and a PGY three, two and one. And so it, I think asking about that and hearing that we're saying that it just shows that we acknowledge the importance of, connect, importance of connection. So it sounds, like, um, it sounds like that's a great question. I think that asking them about connection and mentorship would give you even more information than asking about wellness. And it's a great question.
3: Yeah, and I I think, you know, hitting upon, you know, wellness is, you know, really the term resilience. And that goes along with, you know, connection. It's, you know, the wellness part is very important and all the things to, you know, make you well and all the things that people have talked about and the mentor families and the mentorship and really that connection and sense of community you have at a program is going to be the most important thing in building that resilience. Because there's going to be times there are bad situations, you're going to have that patient that dies unexpectedly or a bad outcome or family stress or your kids at home doing zoom school or whatever it may be Um, and you're going to have to deal with those things and having that support structure and that family and building that connection so when you have those times you have your mentor and you have your big SIB, and you have your advisor community and you have your program leadership. And you know you can reach out to all those people or any of those people or your fellow residents who are really gonna be some of your biggest support systems. Um, to have that support is really important and is really one of the keys for building that resilience.
1: We talked about wellness and we talked about resiliency. Um, we, we talked about being in a space where you thrive um, what about when, when, when things need to change in the space? Uh, could some of the program directors speak on um, some of the changes they've implemented in their program and in uh, their residency curriculum based on feedback from the residents? Can
4: I just say that this question um, gets a little bit hard to answer. And I think actually Dr. Bodkin already said this, that their motto is to always get better, something Something fancy and in Latin. But um, i really
1: or ever better.
4: Uh, OK, good job. <laughs> um, I, I skipped Latin class. Um, it, it really is, if the program is stagnant and not changing, that, that they're, not, they're not keeping up to date. So it's hard for me when people say, what have you changed? And it's like, what have I not changed, I feel like. you know it, We're building almost every single experience all the time because we're always checking in. And, and once we get to one point, then the pie is higher in the sky. And yes, maybe you're still rotating in the same place, but we've initiated, you know, maybe an AC Junie workshop on assessment to try and improve the faculty in, in assessing you. We have definitely, and I cannot imagine that programs don't, we have definitely heard our residents tell us that, you know, A, B, and C is happening that we don't feel like this is a good experience for us. And in some instances we've said, okay. And we've actually changed the block schedule, um, which sounds drastic. and, And sometimes it's true because the experience whittled down to something that was not providing their goals and objectives. And then sometimes we've sat them down and said, I'm sorry, that sucks. I hear you. Let's try to see what we control and make better but wellness is not being on a beach drinking a beer thriving is what we're talking about and sometimes it's uncomfortable so let's talk about what's healthy uncomfortable and what's not and so we have a conversation um we really 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 appreciate and rely on our chiefs and our whatsapp because we that is the way we hear it so i don't know um but i really like we're changing all the time it's hard to even call it not changing.
7: Yeah, I would say it's, and I'm agreeing with Dr. Holly. I would say every year of our program, and sometimes it's even hard to wait to the end of the year to implement curriculum changes that we feel have become clear are necessary um, from feedback from residents that have rotated on certain rotations. Um, every year, it seems to be there's there's like one rotation that's like the rotation of the year that is the, the theme of the, the, the troublemaker, if you will. Um, but again, we're a newer program, so we're developing and we're promoting new things. And, you know, maybe it's ICU or maybe it's critical care or maybe it's cardiology or, or what have you, or, you know, maybe trauma is the troublemaker this year. But all of those things are also all critical to the curriculum and the education of an emergency physician, And the the differences between the resident that's having the problem with that rotation and Dr. Holly and I is that we know how critical that education that they are providing is to your education. And it's, it's the balance of how that education is challenging with that information that their education, they're teaching you is critical to your knowledge base. Um, so that, that, is a, that is a challenge every year. Um, but we always hear the feedback of our residents and if a rotation is not working, we continuously work to reframe that rotation or redirect that rotation into something that's more palatable and more educational and more workable for the residents and the faculty. Um, And we've had little tweaks every year of our program. And, you know, and and I'm sure at some point we'll get to some equilibrium that that doesn't happen every year. Um, You know, but we, the feedback from our residents is critical to us. We value that immensely.
5: Dr. Vega makes a lot of really good points. I, I think there's a difference between really hard and challenging rotations that are stressful and you work almost 80 hours a week and things like that compared to being treated uh, unprofessionally and being treated in a way that is disrespectful or being scutted out or things like that. And, you know, sometimes uh, eating your vegetables is good for you and and sometimes we can realize that. And sometimes the chiefs have to, or the residents have to let us know that this isn't just hard. This is, this is not right. We're not getting a good education. And we're not being offered the same things as other people. So there's a big difference. And sometimes it's harder from PDs to sort those out. And that's where we rely on, on our frontline people, the residents, and the chiefs to tell us to know uh, what the real situation is and make adjustments based on that. But um, there, there can be a big variety of, of different experiences between different residents. And it's, uh, it's important to sort it out and try to make changes. I think that Dr. Vega said it right on is, if you're not making changes, then you're falling behind at this point. Um, there's new things coming out all the time.
2: So we have one last question because we're getting close to 7.30, so we don't want to keep you all too long. But before we go, we had a question about the best time um, and the best way to contact you. So how do you think programs um, perceive it and how would they prefer either now before our ERAS is submitted after ERAS is submitted or after we haven't heard back for an interview, when's the best way to reach out?
3: I think the best way to reach out, I think you have to put your application in and give the programs a chance to review the application. Then if there are places you're really interested in, programs, you know, for whatever reason, and you haven't heard back after ERAS is opened, um, and you've given a little bit of time, then I would contact them. And, you know, you can either contact the program director or program coordinator, and just say, you know, I'm really interested in your program. I love X, Y, and Z about it. Um, I just wanted to make sure, you know, you saw my application. You know, my letter's still pending. Blah blah blah, whatever it may be, and let them know.
6: I would echo what what Dr. Freeman just said. I would I would also just add that if there is like the one place that you you know you really just absolutely know and would really love to be at, and you haven't heard back, and um, you know, folks have gotten interviews. You you may ask your um, like program leadership for like that one, you know that one singular favor to reach out on your behalf. We can't be reaching out any any more than one because um, if I do that with my colleagues here and I say that, then that that kind of puts us all in a bad situation. So um, that's a, that's a that's a thing that you can do, especially if you have a good relationship with your program leadership. And I think it'll really help you, um, you know, at least help whoever that person is if they can vouch for you.
7: I think it's fair if there's a place that you're extremely interested in to reach out to them, you know, at the time or very shortly after ARIS opening. And the reason I say that is in the past when ARIS opened, we very shortly after had ASAP and the residency fair, which was a very recent after the ARIS opening opportunity for applicants to reach out to program directors, which isn't going to be at the same, you know, it's not gonna be linked in a time-wise fashion this year. I think that's probably appropriate. You, you, know, you can't do that to 40 programs you know, times you know, 1,000 applicants. I think it's okay to reach out to us because you, if it's a program that you're extremely interested in, because you've got to remember if you're extremely interested in us, I'd rather know that now than a month from now when I've already filled my spots for
4: applications. Um, just tell us the truth, Vega. We prefer one of those airplanes with the banners behind it. Yeah, that you will totally get an interview. If you get us the airplane with the banner. Um.
6: <laughs> why Why stop there? Just go Lloyd Dobler, get the big stereo and just like, <laughs> you know, right outside the window. I mean, you got to watch out for the stalker thing. Just got to, you got to watch out for that.
7: Uh, I mean, I, we have an intern right now that we, um, did not offer an interview with the initial application last year, who just walked up to me last year at ASAP, and was like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I really wanna come to your program. And I'm like, hi, I know I didn't give you an interview slot because I already gave them all out. And he's my intern now, okay? So sometimes it, it helps to be a little bit forward to a point. Um, So I think it's totally appropriate if you're extremely interested in a specific program to
4: send an email expressing that interest. I I will tell you that a lot of programs are reaching out by social media and um, some programs are some programs aren't but there's a lot of engagement um, by social media and that might be a great way to engage with the program Um, we definitely, we have, I've learned all kinds of cool stuff on, what do you call it? Insta. I can make things fly in, things sparkle, things look like rainbows. It's my daughter is like super impressed. Um, but that is a way to engage with the program and indicate your interest and really learn about the flavor of the program so that you, you can understand if you are attracted to being a part of that kind of a personality or a characteristic. I've also learned how to Twitter.
2: In just for clarification, because um, you had, a few of you had mentioned, if you haven't heard back um, about the interview for a little bit, what does that timeline look like this year? And when is, would it be time to expect to hear back?
7: I mean, we have a whole week off after the release date of application review between Myself and Dr. Holly and one other faculty reviewer between like various dates. I mean, it'll be a minute, it'll be a minute because we expect significant increase in the number of applications this year. So don't freak out if it's not two days later. Don't freak out if it's not a week later. Does that seem fair guys?
2: Yes, Dr. Bodkin, you had frozen. I wanted to give you a chance to say what you were going to say before we close out.
5: I agree with Dr. Vega, I apologize. My internet uh, switched off for a second. Um, You know, it's it's gonna take us a little time to get through applicants, but because of the short nature of the front end of this, uh, we are all taking time off on October 24th for that week to review applications and send them out. So if you don't hear in a week from one of your top one or two programs that you're really interested in to us, reach out, tell us why you're interested. Tell us what stands out about your application and tell us why you want to come to our program and we will review it. Um, It's important for us, you know, we don't want to sell false truths or, or sell something we don't have to offer. We want people that want to be at our program because that makes a more successful resident. If I match somebody that I told them we have something that we don't and they're going to be miserable in Rochester, that makes it for a long three years for both of us and a terrible experience. So we want to match people that want to be there and we want to match people that want to have what we have to offer. So it's really important for us. It works from both sides. So tell us why you want to come tell us why you wanna match there and uh, we'll take a good long look at your application. And if we have any questions, we'll reach back out or we'll offer you an interview.
7: That sounds great. One week, let us get in the nitty gritty of all those applications. If you haven't heard and you really want to express your interest, please reach out.
1: We've covered a lot of information today um, from uh, how to provide a competitive application, what to do uh, in your virtual interviews, Um, you know, how to sort of compensate between having slows and not having slows and how to, you know, establish a relationship with program directors in different residency programs. Uh, We wanna thank all of our panelists for joining us here today. And we thank you all for attending this webinar uh, by the Medical Student Council of the AAEM RSA. Everyone have a great night.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, Resident and Student Association. For more information about AEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.